Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. And uh, today I want to start out to remind you that uh, we do have this website called consensusnetwork.io. And if you have an interest in going there and taking some of our tutorials just in terms of potentially buying your first uh, little bit of Bitcoin or how to trade it, etc., check it out. Very simple to use. Nicely done little tutorials by Phil Chan. Also wanted to let you know that there is another podcast that I do, in case you didn't know. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. So if you are somebody who is trying to figure out how to invest outside of this crypto world, I do a podcast that's really focused on investing outside of Wall Street uh, in what traditional folks call alternative assets, which is really just, um, you know, real estate and uh, real stuff, stuff that you can, you know, feel and touch and smell and all those things that uh, have made people a lot of money over the centuries and uh, anyway check that out it's called uh it's called wealth formula podcast and is available in all the same places that this podcast is available now as far as today's show i you know i don't know if you've noticed but uh, people or companies uh, especially are overusing the word blockchain in fact i read an article recently that exposed 12 publicly traded companies that uh, reaped huge valuation rewards. I mean, their stock just skyrocketed simply by adding the word Bitcoin or blockchain to their name, even if they had nothing to do with Bitcoin or blockchain. Now, listen, this technology that is coming through is special. I think that's why I'm doing an entire podcast on it. And I have no doubt about that. But even actual blockchain projects may not have a real reason to uh, include uh consensus and permissionlessness and all these attributes of blockchain but uh, and so part of part of what we've got to do is to flush out over the next decade which projects actually benefit from the technology and so in our job in the meantime is really to understand the technology as well as we can uh, as investors to make sure that if we are investing in a project that utilizes distributed ledgers it actually has purpose. My guest this week on Consensus Network is somebody who's very good at that sort of thing, particularly in identifying what use cases are, what's real, what's not. He is a very impressive guy who can think both at the macro level, you know, is is sort of a philosophical approach to this space and combine that with uh, really sharp analytical skills uh, that he used uh, at Fidelity. Uh, his name is Nick Carter, and he is going to help us navigate through this rapidly changing world of distributed ledger technology when we come back. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. 
So welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Nick Carter. Nick is a partner at Castle Island Ventures. And before joining Castle Island, Nick worked for Fidelity as their first crypto asset analyst, where he devised research perspectives on public blockchains. He's also the co-founder of Coinmetrics, a platform devoted to demystifying on-chain data and bring transparency to the industry. He's written extensively about token holder rights, crypto asset governance models, and public blockchains uh, as political institutions. Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Buck. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So I don't want to get too sort of pedestrian here, but I just did notice that you are you have a master's in uh, in philosophy. So how do you go from a master's in philosophy to the digital asset space? Well, the, that's actually uh, kind of a quirk of the Scottish uh, university naming system. Um, okay. That would be equivalent to an undergraduate degree here. Okay. Um, it's just that um, at, at certain Scottish universities, they call it a master's, which is very confusing. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I studied philosophy undergrad, uh, particularly was interested in uh, epistemology, the, the sort of the theory of knowledge and, uh, and political philosophy. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, crossovers there, um, yeah. particularly when you're designing these kind of novel uh, governance systems you know, you're trying to determine how uh, property is allocated in society. And for the first time, we have the, this ability to conduct kind of experiments, especially you'll, you'll notice a lot of the governance schemes in crypto, kind of many of them rely in some ways on these concepts from social contract theory, um, political philosophy. So there definitely is a crossover. I'm, I wouldn't say that's how I got into it. I, I ended up doing a, a you know, after undergrad, I, I did a, a sort of much con more conventional master's in finance, uh, which was uh, really my um, ticket in along with um, blogging about this stuff and, and starting Coinmetrics. Yeah. So what was Coinmetrics? What, t tell us a little bit about Coinmetrics. Yeah, so I started that uh, when I was uh, doing my, uh, my master's. Um, the issue at the time, this was uh, late 2016, early 2017, was a lack of good usage data on major public blockchains. So there were some data sources aggregating, you know, how many transactions are there a day on Bitcoin and what is the economic value of the flow through those systems? You know, what's like the economic throughput? Yeah. Um, and they, they were very scattered and just incomplete in general. And I was trying to create sort of regressions against usage to compare that to price to say, well, you know, is can I design a model such that I plug in inputs from the blockchain's usage data and, uh, you know, essentially train it to see whether it's predictive of price at all. Uh, that was kind of the hunch that I had at the time, but the, the data was basically impossible to acquire. And uh, that's when I got together with a, a, you know, an engineer friend and we started running nodes for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dash, Monero, et cetera, et cetera. And we took the kind of semi-structured data and translated it into uh, structured, comprehensible, simple data so that anybody, and you can do this on, on coinmetrics.io today, you can download these data sets. We're not restricting usage or anything. And uh, you can play with on-chain data to determine you know, what is actually going on on these blockchains because the, the idea was that um, if people had access to sort of the ground truth of on-chain activity, it would allow them to make better decisions as opposed to just relying on uh, on white papers uh, or marketing. Yeah, yeah. So some of the other ones out there, I mean, I, I, I actually, I 
I'm sure I should have known about Coinmetrics, but what's the difference between that and say like a Blocktivity? I've noticed Blocktivity comes up a couple of times where it seems like that's more just activity on the blockchain, but it's non-specific. Is that the difference? Um, yeah, I, I, I think Blocktivity mostly covers transaction count. Um, I, I haven't spent too much time on it. I mean, the, the problem really is the kind of analytical framework is still lacking with regards to really deeply understanding on-chain data. So the risk is that we're just aggregating garbage stats and giving people access to that. Yeah. And, and so what we've always tried to do is be very deliberate uh, in terms of uh, talking about the various nuances involved in analyzing on-chain data and and the constraints and the difficulties. So uh, for instance, you know, there's this popular notion of transaction volume or transaction value. Uh, you know, what is the dollar equivalent value of the circulation on a, a major public blockchain per day? And the estimates for those on Bitcoin and Ethereum will vary over several orders of magnitude because it's just super imprecise. So one approach we've taken, which maybe distinguishes us from some of the other aggregators is to be very definite about the the uh, the risks involved in, in using this data and uh, and the constraints and the drawbacks and so on. Sure. Now, uh, was Coinmetrics was that before or after you were with Fidelity? I started that before. Um, I think that was actually part of how I um, initially perked up my my future boss's ears. I think he knew about Coinmetrics, yeah. um, and then I. I wasn't exactly meant to do this, but I continued running it on the side while I was there and then uh, ended up uh, spinning it, uh, actually incorporating it as a business w once I'd left um, and once I joined uh, the venture fund that we started. Yeah. And I want to talk about that in a second, but let, I'm curious about what your experience at Fidelity and, you know, uh, obviously they're now uh, one of the big you know the big players that are uh, that are actually going to get their get their feet wet in this stuff and get involved. Did that happen? Did, was there a lot of talk of that while you were there? Were you part of that? How how did how does that uh, how did that all come out? Yeah, a great question. Well, the, the short answer is that it didn't happen overnight. It was a very long uh, and involved process to go from being skeptical or to put it crassly ignorant about these this asset class, um, whether it represents an asset class or not, to being one of the the leading institutions, you know, in terms of leading the charge, uh, you know, right now with custody, and then in the future we'll see um, whether there's there's other uh, products which come out of there. Um, but it, it was probably about a five year process uh, to go from zero to uh, now they have a custodial offering, uh, which I think is is quite a distinguished uh, and differentiated product relative to the other. Uh, custodial offerings. Uh, you know, it, it got started as part of a wargaming exercise in 2013. Uh, it was essentially a, a scenario planning exercise uh, and, and, you know, trying to guess at things that might happen in the future that might be a threat to Fidelity's business. Oh, wow. And one of them was, um, it was called frictionless capital markets. Uh, and the worry was, uh, will security settlement end up happening on a peer-to-peer -peer basis? Because that's a, a, a really large part of Fidelity's business. Sure. And, that ended up not being the case um, unless we go to this tokenized world. I don't know if we will or we won't, but uh, it, it didn't end up being the case now, at least. However, that led Fidelity to this notion of blockchains and eventually Bitcoin. So they went through a lot of the, the cycle that large enterprises go through looking at the private blockchains and evaluating those projects. And then interestingly, they felt that as an asset manager, 
they might as well focus on the assets themselves, you know, the cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. So there were a few initiatives there, but the one that eventually bore fruit was the custody initiative, which I think is a really important piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I know the guys on the team there, I think that they'll be probably one of the, the big winners in the custody space. Yeah. Um, they have an extremely professional view on this. They've gone about it in a very deliberate kind of a risk averse way. Yeah. So my, my, uh, my little group there was actually distinct from the custody project. We were actually a small balance sheet fund and I was hired to devise research perspectives on these assets. So I'd write long form research pieces like what does decentralization mean? What are the dimensions of decentralization? How is it manifested on these networks? How can we distinguish Ripple from Bitcoin, for instance? Yeah. Those are the kind of stuff I was writing about. So my goal there was to develop a a sort of a a systematic and comprehensive understanding of of these assets. Yeah, it's really interesting to me because now, you know, talking about fidelity, getting involved with the custodian side and actually saw today on Twitter uh, a guest that we had on previously um, uh, with BlockFi. Uh, yeah. They made an investment in BlockFi, which is a, a collateralized, crypto collateralized debt, which is also interesting. Again, you know, just these small investments, again, sort of uh, fortifying the some, some exposure to this asset class. And then you've got, you know, Yale's endowment involved. It's pretty interesting. I want to talk a little bit about now you're with uh, Cas... I don't know if you're the founder or you're you're with Castle Island, and and that's the it's a it's sort of a it's a venture fund, right? That's right. We're a conventional uh, venture fund. Um, yeah, I mean it's just myself and Matt Walsh. Matt was uh, Fidelity's um, director, essentially director of their crypto strategy. So um, I, I speak of their journey as if I was there, which is not the case. You know, I was only there from 2017 onwards. Yeah. He was there from 2013 onwards, so he saw uh, that whole transformation. And much of their, I don't know if you, you know, many crypto believers will believe that what they did was uh, praiseworthy in terms of getting their toes wet in the market. But if you're a skeptic, maybe, you know, you you think what they've done is extremely risky. But um, a lot of their efforts in cryptocurrency are due to to Matt's stewardship of that um, program. So he really has a a legacy over there. Um, But so, yeah, Castle Island Ventures is, is myself and Matt. Uh, we got started in summer 2018, and and we've been deploying capital. Uh, we we are not an ICO fund. We're not a token fund. We um, we write checks at the seed stage uh, for operating businesses in the uh, cryptocurrency space, either building on top of public blockchains that we think are robust and reliable, or blockchain agnostic. You know, building the sort of associated financial services that we think will need to exist, building exchange tech, custody tech. You know, order management solutions, smart order routing, data. That's obviously what CoinMetrics does, those kinds of use cases. Right. When you're evaluating these kinds of businesses, they're not necessarily even, like you said, they're not necessarily even blockchain businesses, right? But they're sort of uh, part of the infrastructure or, or some of the use cases potentially of blockchain. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I would say a lot of them are kind of enabling businesses that would be required for this market to mature. So we're, we're still at a stage of relative immaturity. You know, it's very difficult for uh, serious institutions to engage with these assets in a meaningful way. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the pieces of the puzzle are things like lending, which is what BlockFi did. And 
and that's my my old group at Fidelity um, are, were the ones writing that check. You know, uh, Casa is a, is a portfolio company of ours. They help people manage their keys in a way that is kind of robust to various different kinds of shocks. So if you lose a single key, um, you can recover from that. So you know, those are the kind of use cases that we think are enabling technologies to allow this market to mature a little bit. And then we have other kind of a, approaches which are more at the application layer, which will use the assurances involved in public blockchains in some way. So, you know, we're diligencing a few companies that are relying on the timestamping function uh, that you get from from using uh, from you know hashing data into Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, which is kind of an interesting uh, feature which didn't exist you know prior to two thousand nine. A a very robust uh, timestamp database. Yeah. What you know, it, one of the things that I, I think about sometimes is that there seems to be maybe an overuse, and and this is probably part of that ICO phenomena of blockchain in general, or at least the idea of you know blockchaining everything. What's your take on that? Like, how often you know do you see businesses that come at that 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 uh, maybe they approach you or you look at them and they're utilizing blockchain or they're on blockchain, but you don't really need it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a uh, a condition that afflicts a large portion of this industry. I uh, I've been a I've definitely been a, a fairly loud critic of even the word blockchain. You know, it's an interesting trivia fact that Satoshi uh, himself or herself uh, never used the word the word blockchain. Satoshi definitely wrote chain of blocks, but not blockchain itself and. You know, in some ways, that's just a neologism, which kind of borrows, I think, the the reputation of, of Bitcoin's uptime, you know, and, and reliability guarantees, and then tries to apply that to what really look like centralized databases to me. Um, and I think it's been abused to some degree by maybe the IBMs of the world um, who are using it for PR purposes. I don't think their products look anything like a proof of work blockchain um you know in many cases you have consortiums of validators that will come together and take turns signing a database and to me that is fundamentally very different from a public blockchain with permissionless validation like bitcoin and ethereum are where anybody can propose a block provided they submit a valid proof of work so i think there's a really distinct set of ideas there. I, I think, you know, maybe the private blockchains will be useful. That remains to be seen. But I think it's probably important to distinguish them because in my view, their essential features are very distinct. Yeah, and then the the other question, I guess, that comes out of that is is in which situations or use cases is it is it important or useful to be permissionless uh, as opposed to being permissioned, but maybe just more efficient? Well, very, very few use cases. Right. Is it worth um, undertaking all the additional costs and overhead of, of permissionlessness? Um, Bitcoiners would say the money use case alone. Um, and then people that like smart contract platforms or computation would say, well, actually, it may be possible to extend this and, and create versions of Google and Facebook and and Twitter that are, you know, run on these distributed computation engines with a permissionless element. I definitely see the logic there too. 
Um, I just think there's probably a lot more technical challenges to scale before those uh, systems really work. But the, to me, the the main use case we've seen is is uh, maybe the most boring one if you're a Silicon Valley investor, which is just uh, the money, the sort of alternative um, monetary system. So that's the only one that I think has really proved its metal so far. And then I think it sort of remains to be seen whether we can extend these systems into generalized computation engines. Uh, but I'm also optimistic about that. When you look at the different projects out there, do you consider yourself somebody who's more on the side of being more of a Bitcoin maximalist or somebody who's sort of who just sees a validity in various projects and who knows, are you kind of agnostic to that from your perspective? Um, I would say um, privately um, and, and maybe there isn't m much privacy left in this world, but um, <laughs> privately I'm probably, you know, more on the Bitcoin side, like my own personal stash would be pretty much exclusively Bitcoin. That's the only one that I believe would last me foreseeably 30 years into the future without too much alteration. However, that said, I'm, I'm more agnostic when it comes to diligencing um, operating businesses building on top of these things. What matters, I think, is that they understand their, the blockchain they're building on very well. You've had a lot of uh, startups that went astray because they were building, for instance, on Bitcoin in 2015, and then their business models required that there were always low fees. And then when the fees crept up, um, they sought to change Bitcoin in some way or they, their business models became obsolete. So I think that's an interesting case where you have to really, to build on top of these systems, they're very uncompromising and you have to understand it very well. So that would be the main thing I'd look for. And then of course, you always have protocol risk, which is that the protocol itself changes in some sort of unpredictable way. Um, and that maybe also herds you uh, in, in the Bitcoin direction because um, what we have right now is a crop of, uh, yet to be launched smart contract platforms where their properties are basically unknown. You know, this would be your your definities of the world, uh, your hash graphs, uh, maybe Telegram if they launch. Um, so, uh, well, th those are just total unknowns. We'll see what happens. And then, I guess the risk with Ethereum that I would identify is that they're good. They're sort of completely rearchitecting the whole chain from scratch. Um, the consensus is being rearchitected, the virtual machine, et cetera. So it, it may be the case that if you're a startup and you, you built something that's suitable for Ethereum 1.0, um, you're kind of out of luck when something really dramatically changes. Um, so that, those are probably the main things uh, that I'm worried about. Yeah. You know, the, the question of decentralization in all of this um, or permissionlessness or, or, or all this is really kind of like something I've been thinking about a lot because I think there's clearly a technology that can make things more efficient, faster, cheaper out there. But there seems like there's this tension between sort of uh, the ideology of, you know, I don't know if you want to come blockchain people or, or whatever, but um, of everything being decentralized and permissionless, versus something that maybe has some level level of uh, central governance, um, but the technology makes it smoother. I mean, is there is there a balance there that you look at potentially um, and say, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be perfect in, in terms of the ideology behind distributed ledgers? 
but it works better. Yeah, that's a, a really great point, actually. You know, I think a great example would be EOS. So right. uh, they have probably compromised to, I, I think, you, you know, EOS fans would admit this too, that they deliberately compromised in terms of the, um, you know, uh, the decentralization of who's allowed to propose blocks. So, of course, it's limited to a pool of uh, 21 block producers who are voted on by the owners of EOS. Um, so it's more of a either democracy or plutocracy, however you want to characterize it. And then there's obviously there's the risk that there's bribery and then it becomes sort of a racket where the larger block producers are essentially buying political support, um, which is, a you know, we've seen some scattered evidence of this happening. So that's the risk, right? But in return, you only have 21 sort of economic nodes that matter on the network. And so they, I'm not exactly sure how the consensus works, but the conclusion from all that is that they can process, you know, 10 million transactions a day, um, probably more than that, but that's the most that we've seen in the real world. Whereas Bitcoin does, uh, you know, 300, 300 400,000 a day and Ethereum will do up to 800,000. So, you know, I think there's actually a case to be made for, uh, for sort of very transparently compromising on the decentralized governance side of things to win some scalability gains. I think actually it's an interesting state of affairs where we have lots of different um, iterations, you know, along with different projects on that continuum. And there may be a, a appropriate balance of both ends. Yeah, the, the, the project that comes to mind when I think about that is actually one that you mentioned, which is Hashgraph, which I've been following um, and... I look at that as an investor and somebody who's interested in the technology as well. And a lot of the things that uh, Hedera and Hashgraph have been criticized for by you know the, the cryptocurrency community is ultimately that, first of all, there's very clear, defined, um, you know, there's governance, right? There's going to be these large institutions involved uh, who are going to make up these super nodes or whatever you want to call them. Um, but that on top of that, they're actually, even though it's going to be open for everyone to use the blockchain, or not the blockchain, the uh, uh, the consensus network in this case, um, yeah. the uh, even though it's going to be open uh, to everybody, it is patented. So you can't go fork off and do something else. To me, the utility of that, rather than looking at it as ideology, just seems like well, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. And then you, you know, you look at guys like you know Mance Harmon and and these guys who who who've got a lot of business experience. And I, I, I feel like, yeah, maybe they're onto something there. Yeah, it is a really um, fascinating question. I mean, I, I'm definitely uh, in the you know full disclosure, probably in the more skeptical crowd uh, when it comes to Hashgraph. Um, but you know, I, I think uh, there is definitely a risk that um, you end up being. Uh, you know, the Bitcoiners in particular are blinded by their sort of ideological priors and uh, kind of miss the forest for the trees. And I think, you know, nobody's laboring under the apprehension that Hashgraph is trying to match a Bitcoin for its decentralization. Um, I guess the relevant question is, are they able to strike a balance of, um, of centralization and decentralization that is still compatible with their you know, essentially the objectives of the chain. Um, and I, I will confess, I don't know uh, what the Hashgraph chain is is being designed for, you know, what kind of use cases in particular. 
Um, my view would probably be that if you're looking to create something which sort of undermines governments, which is an alternative monetary system, uh, then you probably have to max out all of the, the resiliency and decentralization sliders. But if you are looking to create a, let's say a version of Amazon or a version of Facebook, which can't be easily censored by the creator um, or you know where deplatformings can occur, then it could be the case that uh, you, you can only set those sliders to 75%. Yeah. So yeah. I, it's a, it's going to be a really fascinating question. I'm, I don't know if the, um, the valuation is going to hold up at launch. That'll also be something interesting to watch. Well, yeah, yeah. That's the other, that's the other question. Um, and you know, in their, in their particular case, their whole focus is really, I mean, they don't, they don't just talking to Mans Herman, they don't really consider themselves, uh, you know, competition for Bitcoin. They really see, see themselves as a, a faster, more, you know, efficient, way of um you know providing the infrastructure for decentralized or quote unquote decentralized here applications um that would be more efficient than than ethereum but you know i'm curious uh i guess from your perspective also what is your take on you know the growing institutional interest in cryptocurrencies in general in the sense that you know what effect do you think that um you know, that kind of smart money or big money or whatever you want to call it has on the uh, ecosystem at large? Is it is it a net positive thing, net negative thing, in your opinion? Yeah, the, it's been the source of a lot of strife, probably, from the, uh, especially from the Bitcoin crowd. Uh, there's always this worry that, um, you know, large, that uh, as with uh, the gold markets where people believe that the, the gold paper markets are suppressing the spot value of gold um, and that the derivatives markets uh, suppress, you know, the, the spot markets. Um, there's that same worry about uh, Bitcoin, for instance, you know, with uh, with fractional reserves being the chief adversary in Bitcoin land. The question is, why would we then reintroduce these central, you know, intermediaries that can issue fractional reserves, and on the one hand, you know, I definitely see the the validity of the critique. Uh, you know, however, I think the the interesting thing with with cryptocurrencies is that you can actually audit them with comparable ease. So uh, it, it's not difficult to provide a attestation which is cryptographically sound and and you know auditable, which which says, look, I I we have. Uh, $100,000 worth of deposits, and that translates to X many Bitcoins in our cold wallets. And here's a, a proof that we have the, you know, a sufficient number of Bitcoins in our cold wallets. And you can create those proofs such that they may be obscure information that you don't necessarily want to share with everybody, um, but this, you know, so that people can still verify that you have the appropriate number uh, you know, of, of Bitcoins in your, in your cold storage. So um, I think... The issue with uh, rehypothecation worries and the fractional reserve worries with an asset like gold is that it's very difficult to actually prove that you know a custodian has the number of gold bars in their vaults. But um, with any kind of a cryptocurrency, it's much more easy to prove this. I'm surprised that more exchanges and custodians are not issuing periodic proofs of reserves. And there's this funny movement happening in Bitcoin land right now where on the 10th anniversary of the chain being founded. So upcoming on January the 3rd, 
2019, a lot of Bitcoiners are, are <laughs> trying to put together a coordinated run on the bank, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So they, it's, I got to love the like cultural um, events that happen in Bitcoin land. So, you know, they're all going to try and withdraw their exchange deposits at the same time and kind of scare the exchanges a little bit uh, into maybe publishing proofs of reserves. The funny so, thing about that to me is that the the people who are so so involved with it probably don't have a lot of Bitcoin sitting on the exchanges in the first place, right? Well, that's right. I mean, <laughs> you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So they wouldn't have any on exchanges right. anyway. Right. So <laughs> I guess they're trying to tempt uh, the traders to uh, to temporarily withdraw their bitcoins yeah but yeah i mean I, to answer your question i think in general uh, it's a net positive if you look at the messaging coming out of fidelity's uh, digital assets team they're very attuned to i think the issues of the space they you know they're they're essentially crypto natives so to speak i i know the guys over there they're they're longtime members of the industry so they they really understand what people are worried about and concerned about um and as more institutional dollars come in, that doesn't necessarily um, guarantee that you know the price will rise, but I think it gives us more liquidity. Better, can, it turns some of these liquidity ponds into liquidity pools. You know, uh, prime brokerage and and functioning less frictional OTC markets will do that. And I think that's a net win for everybody. Generally speaking, more liquidity means. Um, you know, less market impact of your transactions and, and lower fees and, and just more sort of robust exchanges. And, and maybe we'll see a transition away from the cowboy exchanges, which are kind of ripping off their users towards uh, supervised exchanges, which I think is, is a net positive. You know, I, I know you're not, you're not following, you know, I know you're not a trader. I know you're not a profit, but uh, you know, we've obviously had this massive sell-off and crypto winter, uh, and when I look at that as somebody who's looking at what's going on within institutional with institutional movement into this area, I would think that that would be reflected in uh, market cap. But we 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 haven't we haven't seen that. Is that something you feel like in the next? It's going to take several years to see that kind of impact, or what? What's your take on that? Well, I, you know, I think a lot of the, the call it a bubble that occurred in 2017 was due to the expectation of massive inflows from kind of, you know, institutional investors, large investors, endowments, hedge funds, conventional hedge funds, right? And I, you know, anecdotally am hearing from my friends at non-crypto hedge funds. So these would be, you know, equity funds or commodity sure. funds. Oh, now we're looking at a, we're thinking about a Bitcoin position or we're analyzing Ethereum. So interestingly, now that the downturn has come, they're interested again, right? Because nobody wants to buy the top. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think the bubble really was a function of people's miscalibrated expectations. It, it really is a slow process. You know, keep in mind that it took Fidelity a full five years to go from thinking about this seriously to actually having a, a product out there. Um, that's the kind of pace that these things operate on. And, you know, I've, I've talked to some of the endowments that are operating in the space and, they're not taking a direct uh, cryptocurrency position because that's typically not how endowments operate. They like to go through managers. So right. they might back a cryptocurrency venture fund or a cryptocurrency hedge fund. Uh, so in many ways, it's still sort of indirect exposure. Yeah, I think, um, I think I remember somebody talking about that with 
you know, uh, for example, you know, Andreessen Horowitz has been involved with cryptocurrency projects. And then there's, you know, endowments that, you know, have been involved with Andreessen Horowitz for years. And yeah. so they're getting exposure, but they're getting exposure indirectly. Yeah, I, I would say the A16Z crypto fund, you know, $300 million fund is an interesting case where they will take a stake in a liquid live crypto asset directly. You know, they did it with uh, with Maker um, famously. So you do see the you see it flow through eventually. Right. Um, and then and then, of course, a lot of those endowments backed uh, Paradigm, that large new um, crypto hedge fund. So, I mean, it's definitely happening. And I would say the the serious, you know, wealth managers I talk to are definitely aware of the asset class. But in many cases, um, the questions are like, well, how do we analyze this stuff? How do we value it? Um, you know, no one's ever come out with a good uh, DCF methodology for yeah. Bitcoin or Ethereum. So I think those funds would either seek to develop those methodologies or wait till there's more more agreement or consensus on on how that would be done. And, and you know, there have been... I've, there's there's people that attempt ratio analysis. I've certainly tried myself, but um, there's not a lot to backstop necessarily the value of these things for better or for worse, right? So I would say if you had to value Bitcoin, it'd still be based on your expectations of, of its future market penetration and, and what you think the velocity might be in the future. And to many uh, serious allocators, that's not a sufficient answer to the question and, and that would keep them from, from moving in. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's funny because you you know I'm on following people on crypto Twitter, and I uh, hear some tweets from some well-known people in the this community, and it says you know you know stick to the fundamentals, and I'm like, well, what are the fundamentals? I mean, I, I you know I get what yeah. they're saying. We've never but, defined the fundamentals. Yeah, right? and and we have not been able to value those, so it is a it's a little tricky. I mean, I see value in it as a Bitcoin in particular is, is, you know, the use case being, you know, um, uh, storage of value. But, right. you know, I don't think fundamentally you can, there's a way to, um, you know, to, to quantify exactly how much it should be worth at this point. It's something that I struggle with. I, you know, I, I think about it a lot. Ultimately, maybe it shouldn't be the case that it's um, hedge funds buying it opportunistically. Maybe it should only be purchased by users that can really benefit from the the actual attributes that it has so and people of course are going to try and you know guess at what what the, that population that interested population might be but you know i think a more authentic value might just emerge as a function of people learning about the chain and finding out what they can do with it that they can't do with with the legacy financial system but it, of course it's extremely hard to model that adoption process right so, uh, Castle Island, are you guys? Uh, how big? You know, how big a fund is this? So who Who are your investors? Are you institutional in nature? Are you uh, our uh, our LPs? So, um, actually, Fidelity came in uh, as our largest investor. So, kind of a, uh, a harmonious uh, decoupling there. Um, and uh, the remainder of our LPs are mostly mostly um, high net worth individuals in uh, in Boston. Uh, we raised uh, thirty million. Cool. Very good. And uh, how do we learn more about your work, man? What are, are you? Uh, you're pretty active on Medium. I yeah, so I I like to I spend my weekends uh, thinking about uh, cryptocurrencies and 
and blogging about it on medium that's probably the main place to follow me um do the occasional uh, podcast here and there but really um i i like to do some more sort of data-driven work on medium so i did one where i i compared the um the tps the transactions per second of a whole bunch of blockchains and then actually legacy financial systems like swift and fedwire and ach and then i also compared it to the typical transaction size you know so like what would be the average uh physical cash transaction apparently it's around twenty dollars and and what's the size of your average ethereum transaction and what's the size of your average debit card transaction so i compiled that all into a single chart um i was trying to compare all those different payment and settlement systems so that's the kind of stuff that i'll do who won <laughs> uh it depends uh you've got the ones with really small transactions but there's tons of them and you've got the really big transactions but there's right. not that many right. right yeah there's kind of a it, it's two axes you know right well listen it's been really fun talking to you uh nick and uh i want to uh, thank you again for being on the program thank you so much it's uh, it's been a pleasure we'll be right back Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, I think Nick is a really smart guy, really thoughtful. And it was really fun to talk to him. I'm going to go into some questions that you guys sent me now. Uh, the first one is from William, uh, who is a listener of Wealth Formula Podcast as well. He's asking, hey, it's Will. Absolutely love the website podcast. Uh, it's my go-to in regards to crypto updates uh, with the Altiger Crypto Trader coming in a close second and but i do have a question bruce thanks for that uh i want to point out william that this podcast is uh worth every penny that you pay for it too compared to that uh that particular <laughs> uh newsletter and I'm, I'm just joking actually the there's nothing wrong with the the newsletter that william is talking about it specifically it's uh james altiger but it's also um uh, it's Kamal, I believe it's Kamal Ravikant. It's Nabal's brother, uh, and he's deeply involved in that whole Silicon Valley blockchain distributed ledger world. And so, I'm sure there's you know significant value to it. So I don't mean to be knocking on that, but anyway, um, the question is: Can you explain blockchain, William? That is a broad question. It seems like several companies are about to use blockchain in quotes technology in their business. However, it seems like they are developing their own. If companies are choosing to develop their own blockchain and ledger, what is the purpose of uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum? Well, actually, the latter part of this is a really good question. So I, I would put it this way, and I think it's it, it has a lot to do with sort of what we were talking about here with, with Nick. First of all, a lot of a lot of companies are using the name blockchain when maybe they don't have anything to do with being part of any kind of uh, consensus network. And then on top of that, 
you know, they, they have these companies like, for example, that are, you know, IBM is doing their own little uh, network within IBM that, that they can use. And banks may do the same thing, um, you know, through some of the um, projects that, for example, Chase is working on, which are built on Ethereum. Now, I think the best way to think about the, the question about using it in you know, if a company's building a blockchain of their own, why will that replace Bitcoin and Ethereum? The answer there is no. And the reason is that I think the best parallel to that is that when the Internet came along, a lot of companies started building intranet projects, right? So they were like, oh, we don't really need the Internet. We can do all these things, you know, in our business with an intranet, which basically connects their own computers but not with the rest of the world. A distributed ledger with consensus mechanism, which really is what's powerful about this whole thing, in order for it to be really uh, useful, um, does need to have some kind of uh, distribution, right? It needs to have, it can't just be like a few computers in an office or a business, because if that's the case, then it might as well just be, you know, one ledger, right? It, it might as well just be a uh, an Excel, Excel spreadsheet. The whole idea behind, you know, these distributed ledgers is that they're sitting on thousands of computers across, you know, the world that, you know, are not part of one business. And there's this consensus that occurs and across these computers. And that's what makes it so you can't hack it. That's what makes it so that it can't get hacked uh, because you'd have to go into every, you know, every computer in the world to go back and change the data that's already there. And so that is the value of consensus mechanisms, distributed ledgers. Now, blockchain is just one type of distributed ledgers. And you heard Nick talk about how he hates the word blockchain as it's used currently right now. It's sort of used all over the place. But um, but anyway, that that's the idea is that you know, if you're truly doing a project that requires consensus and immutability and all that, you have to, you have to have something that is sitting on, com you know, a lot of different computers across the world in order to make it immutable uh, and give it all the other qualities of something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Now, uh, now the purpose of Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, themselves is really, you know, right now at least quite different, right? Bitcoin, for the most part, right now. Uh, is a um, some sort of monetary instrument, whether that is a a, a storage of value or whether that's a currency. You know, there's there's some uh, there's people argue about that, uh, but really that's the main use purpose. That is the use purpose for it right now. Although arguably, they can build uh, build on top of that blockchain. You can build more complexity. As you see uh, companies like Blockstream doing, you see Samson Mao last week um, building on top of this blockchain. Ethereum, on the other hand, was really built for the purpose of being a lot more flexible in terms of a platform that just people could use and program smart contracts into. Of course, to me right now, I have to tell you personally that I um actually hold virtually zero Ethereum. Uh, it's not you know either alts or in Bitcoin. Um, 
but you know, it's, it was a great way to get involved with projects cause it's easy to do, but I don't, I don't really, until Ethereum does something to change its scalability, I'm concerned about even its, uh, you know, its role in, in the smart contract world. So anyway, hopefully that's helpful to you, uh, William. Now let's see another question. All right. So the next question is from Nigel from the UK. And uh, Nigel writes, Hi, Buck, could you clarify the token economics of WAX, which is, of course, Worldwide Asset Exchange, one of my uh, projects of interest? I don't, he says, I don't understand how it will increase in value unless they receive a share of the transaction fees. To me, the WAX token is exactly the same as the Binance coin, which is BNB. And from my understanding, holders of Binance coin receive dividends, but I could not identify from the uh, wax white paper if wax did the same so i actually thought it would be interesting to get an answer from wax themselves of course um i could have uh, answered this but it wouldn't be nearly as eloquent and not coming from malcolm cassell himself but here i forward him and this is how he answered it buck binance coin does a buyback from profits which we have not ever said we would do so that answers that so there's not that our consensus model, as you know, is called Delegated Proof of Stake or DPoS. We borrowed it from EOS. Uh, in consensus structure, coin holders can stake their coins to block producers and receive amounts back from what the block producers earn. Additionally, our system requires staking for guilds, escrow, appraisal and other marketplace services remember all this stuff you're not seeing yet because you know the 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 main net uh, you know is not really you know you don't have the 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 tokens yet that can do all this stuff you have erc20 tokens now, each of these functions will return some amount of their generated amount to the stake tokens by definition uh, he goes on to say, I believe that most of this is uh, in the white paper. And then he says, keep in mind, the current token is an ERC-20 token, as I mentioned before, too. And so it does not have any of these functions. Uh, the mainnet token will be connected to all, uh, all the things that I reference above. And, uh, the, of course, the ERC-20 tokens, uh, people who hold those will receive the mainnet tokens in Q2. So um, anyway, I would suggest going to wax.io and checking out some of that information uh, if you want. But, you know, this is a pretty uh, robust project with lots of ways basically to create value. And I think ultimately to drive up the value of that project. I still am. A, that is one project that I am. Gosh, I'm just waiting uh, to me that uh, for that one to. Uh, how it responds when there is some kind of, you know, bull market uh, in Bitcoin again. I think that's going to be one of those that is just going to fly. But uh, anyway, uh, that's it for questions this week. Make sure to send your questions to uh, info at consensusnetwork.io or go to consensusnetwork.io and use the uh, and you can write questions there. You can also leave a voicemail and uh and that's actually preferred, although nobody wants to seem seems to want to do that. So we, but I but I would suggest you do that. Be great to hear from you. Uh, and that's it for me this week on Consensus Network. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. <laughs>